Hi, my name's Jason. I'm the senior pastor at Chilton Church. We hope all our messages will help you connect more fully with God's love, grow as his follower, and share his hope with those around you. Thanks so much for joining us. If you've not seen me before, my name is Jason. I'm the pastor here, and it's really great to be able to launch us into uh, the start of a new series uh, that we have called Origins. Um, you know, everyone seems to love a good origin story at the moment. I'm not sure if you have noticed that in the theme of the films that are being produced. And, and also, maybe you want to hazard a guess this morning at how much the top earning 10 origin films, the latest 10 origin films that have been produced, what do you reckon that they've maybe grossed at the box office? If you were to kind of put that together, anyone want to hazard a guess how much the, the top 10, so that's things like the origin story of Captain Marvel, the Black Panther, Iron Man, these sort of superhero films that are so popular at the moment. No one want to hazard a guess? Okay. Uh, sorry? About a billion. They've grossed just under $4 billion at the box office, the, the top 10 grossing origin story films. And so there is a real interest, isn't there, in the origin of things, where people come from, what our backstory is, how we got to be where we are today. And yet, as Christians and in the church, we can miss very often the richness of engaging with our collective origin story, the foundational truths that explain who God is and who we are and what has gone wrong with the world and perhaps answering the most difficult philosophical question that there is to, to, to ask, why is anything even here at all? I'm not sure if you've ever tried to, to answer that or thought about that. Why are we even here? Why does every, anything even exist at all? And I think because we can find the Old Testament difficult, understandably, we avoid it because we don't know quite how to connect with it. Anyone identify with that? It's, it can be hard to identify with the Old Testament. And so what we're going to be doing over the next couple of months um, in the run-up to Christmas, and then we're going to take a pause and come back to it uh, at the second half of next year, is diving into the Old Testament through the New Testament letter to the Hebrews, and uh, which I think is just a fantastic way of being able to do it, allowing the New Testament, if you like, to be our tour guide through the Old Testament. And I'll come back to that in just a moment. Perhaps just a few things, though, as we get going at why the Old Testament is so important. There we go. Why is it so important? Well, the New Testament quotes from Every book of the Old Testament, bar five, excepting five, uh, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon are the only books in the Old Testament that are not quoted in the New Testament. So that means that Jesus and the apostolic writers, as they were seeking to explain to the world and to us who God is, and how we're meant to connect with him. In order for them to do that, they quoted from 87% of the books of the Old Testament. Isn't that quite amazing? 
What that means is it's actually very difficult to properly understand the New Testament at all without understanding its Old Testament context, the foundations that the New Testament is built upon. Jesus himself quotes from 24 books of the Old Testament. And and it's actually that fact that really helped me as a younger Christian to get my head around some of the parts of the Old Testament that I was finding particularly difficult at the time. And I came away thinking, if Jesus, being God, treated the Old Testament as true and accurate, if he did that, then I can trust it too. Because the key question in life, I believe, actually, is not what you believe, first of all, but rather who you will believe, first of all. And if Jesus is truly God, proved to be God through his words and his works, and ultimately proved to be God through his resurrection from the dead, one of the most robustly evidenced facts in all of ancient history, then I choose to trust Jesus' perspective on the Old Testament. And I would encourage you to do the same. Professor Kenneth Matthews, author of the acclaimed New American Commentary on Genesis chapters 1 through to 11, one of the finest evangelical commentaries on Genesis, I think, that have ever been written. If you want to get a commentary on the book of Genesis, then I'd suggest that you get this one to start with. He says this about the importance just of the book of Genesis in our understanding of 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 the gospel, of salvation story, of being able to relate to God at all. He says this in his commentary, Genesis stands second to none in its importance for proclaiming the whole will of God. It presents the literary and theological underpinning of the whole canonical scriptures, all of the scriptures that we have in our Bible today. If we possessed a Bible without Genesis, we would have a house of cars without foundation or mortar. Just as we have no gospel without the cross, we would have no salvation story without the sacred events of Moses' first book. As Moses is credited for writing Genesis himself. And so the truth is, it's just impossible to understand who God is, how we're meant to live in relationship with God without having an understanding of Genesis and the rest of the Old Testament in the way that Jesus and the apostolic writers would intend us to understand it. It literally is the foundation for our faith. I've got a little diagram and you don't need to jot it all down if you're taking notes. I'll, I'll, put the, I'll put the PowerPoints online so that you can get the slides. But this is just an indication of how much of the book of Genesis, just Genesis, is quoted in the New Testament. Genesis chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 2 again and again, chapter 5 and again, chapter 12 and again and again and again, and chapter 13 and 14 and and 15, and 17, and 18, and chapters 21, uh, chapters 22, 25, 38, 47, right across the New Testament, the book of Genesis is quoted. 
And that's just one of the Old Testament books. Hopefully that gives some level of indication of just how important the Old Testament is for us. This was the Bible of the early church. These were the scriptures that Jesus and the apostolic witnesses would use to prove what they were saying that we now have written down for us in the New Testament. And so I'd love for us to pray, just as we step into this time together this morning, that God would perhaps awaken a fresh love and appreciation and grace to understand the Old Testament as God would have us understand it. Can we pray for that this morning? Okay. Thank you, Lord. Father, I thank you for your word to us, the Old and the New Testament. Your word that has been breathed of the Holy Spirit, it says, that all of Scripture is literally breathed of God and is useful for teaching and correcting and even rebuking at times and encouraging, inspiring us, helping us to live connected to you. And so, Father, we pray as as we come to the Old Testament that you would give us grace to understand it. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Okay, so as I say, we're going to allow a book in the New Testament to be our tour guide through the highlights of the Old Testament. Because we looked at the Old Testament and, and it's vast. And sort of thinking, well, how can we journey the church through that in a way that's helpful and meaningful? And what we've discovered is that in Hebrews chapter 11, there is this unpacking of what real biblical faith looks like. As we live it out, we have these examples of people and generations of people who have trusted God and therefore experienced God's goodness and God's power in their lives. And in the the early chapters of the book of Hebrews, there is this parallel. You might remember it if you've you've read that letter. If not, I'd encourage you to, to go away and maybe make the letter to the Hebrews your devotional reading over the next couple of weeks. But we see in the beginning of this letter that the writer to the Hebrews draws this parallel with the challenge of faith that we have today in his day, and I would say in ours as well, between the challenge of faith that the Israelites had as they were coming out of slavery in Egypt. And he said, there were those that did not have faith in God and therefore were not able to enter into the promised land. And then there were those who did have faith and trust in God. And they were able to enter into the promised land and experience God's blessing and power. And so this chapter 11, it's a call for the church then and today to be like those who have gone before us and to put our faith and our trust in God. That as we do, we would not be like those who who hardened their hearts when God spoke and were not able to enter. But those who had faith in God, in what God had said and promised, and were able to enter into the promised land. And as a result of that, to escape the judgment 
which came on those who did not have faith, and if you read on into chapter 12, comes on those today that do not put their hope and their trust in Jesus. And I think there's a real challenge for us today in this, that we are living in a day and in a season and in a culture where it is becoming increasingly difficult to put our faith and our trust and our hope in God. And I think perhaps becoming a bit more like the life that the people who uh, was being written to in this letter, the letter to the Hebrews, who were facing challenge and persecution for their faith. And so I think there is a real encouragement for us in this. And so Hebrews chapter 11 begins like this, and it's quite a well-known scripture. Hebrews 11 verse 1. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for (laughs) and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. What is faith? What is biblical faith? Biblical faith is knowing who we have chosen to believe above everyone else and trusting that what God has said is real, even though we may not see it yet, even though we may not have been able to see it when it took place. As Professor Gareth Cockrell summarizes on his commentary on this verse, he says, faith is living in accord with the reality of things hoped for. So faith is living in accordance with the reality of what God has said. So that what God has said, we live as if it's true. Because we believe that it is. So we live in accord with the reality of the things that we hope for. Because we hope for the things that God has promised. And through trust in God, the faithful experience his power, God's power, in their lives and receive his approval. Thus they confirm his reality. In other words, as we live by faith, trusting in the things that we may not be able to see, but we trust they are real and true because God has said them. We're able to enter into the real time promised land, the reality of the kingdom of God. We experience God's favor in our lives. And as we do, we evidence the reality of God himself. There is a proof that comes to the world as we choose to live by faith in the things that God has said. And so the writer to the Hebrews now begins to unpack what are the things that the ancients believed? What are the things that these people have trusted in that God has commended them for? And we get our first, if you like, cornerstone belief. Uh, is the very next verse. This is what we must believe in order to even begin the Christian journey at all. This is the start. It literally is the beginning. And it's this, by faith, we understand. And that is the scriptural way. It's not that we understand unto faith, but we believe and therefore are able to understand. We trust and understanding follows. By faith, we understand the universe was formed at God's command. So that what is seen is not made out of what was visible. This is the first 
immovable building block. The very confident belief that God is creator and we and everything else are his creation. And right there, we recognize perhaps the most important biblical truth that everything else gets built upon. And it's this, we are not God's equal. We are not God's equal. There is God who is creator and there is everything else that is creation. And the moment we forget that, everything else in the scriptures actually begins to fall to pieces. God is creator and we are creation. Okay, so here is something that I have created, okay? The big reveal. Oh, okay. So this, this is a painting that, that I have done for good or for bad. <laughs> this is my painting. It is my creation and I am its creator. There is something of me in this, but it is not my equal. And I would hope if Nikki and the boys ever had to make a choice between me and the painting, <laughs> that there would be no hesitation and they would choose me over the painting. At least that's my hope. <laughs> okay. And yet, this painting is actually very precious to me. The day after I began to paint this, it's of a a place in Cape Town, a forest in Cape Town where we used to spend a lot of time. And, and the day after I started painting it, the entire forest, along with most of the mountain range in Cape Town at the time, caught fire and was burnt down. And I've not actually been able to return to this part of the forest because it was deemed unsafe. It's the place that we had our wedding photographs taken. It's the place where we spent a lot of time together. It's the place where uh, the children, in a sense, grew up significantly. And so it has great value to me, and yet it is not at all my equal. And in a similar but much greater way, we are God's creation. We are incredibly valuable to him on the one hand, but we are not his equal on the other. He is creator and we are creation. Now, I know that there are some very creative people in the congregation today. And so what I'd like you to do is just take a moment and share with the people next to you perhaps some of the ways that you like to be creative. Maybe that's something that you haven't discovered yet. You're still looking for your creative spark. But perhaps it's gardening or cooking or painting or singing or dancing or, or whatever it might be. Why don't you just turn to the people around you? Maybe you've not had a chance to say hello to them before and share with them what are some of the ways that you like or at least would like to be able to reflect God's creative power in your life. Okay, just take a moment, say hi to the people next to you and share with them how you like to be creative.
Right, if only one person has had a chance to talk, make sure the other person gets a chance to share as well. We'll just give you another minute to wrap up. Right, okay. Well, hopefully that has been enlightening and an opportunity to learn about perhaps some of the other people around you that you don't get to know. Uh, it's amazing how we can connect with people for years and perhaps not know what some of their passions are. Maybe even there have been some married couples that have learned some new things. Uh, I'm not sure. I saw some couples talking together. Okay, so by faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. As I say, everything ultimately hinges on this belief. As an evangelical church, our first two statements of faith cover this, the belief that God is eternal and that God is the creator of all things. Why is it so significant? Well, it tells us something about the very nature of God. Think of the power and wisdom and energy that would be required to create the universe. Think of the scale and the detail of the world that we live in. From the way that atoms and subatomic particles relate to one another, to the way that whole galaxies move in concert with each other. The sheer scale and number of the stars. I'm not sure if any of you have seen the, the indescribable video that um, Louis Giglio does and shows the scale of the stars and just as they begin to increase and you just think our minds cannot even comprehend the scale of the universe. And yet, at the same time, the incredible design of a human eye. Who is God when we look at what he has made? We see a God that is ultimately, infinitely higher, greater, wiser than we are. God's ways, God's laws, God's desires completely transcend our own. Just in the same way that the painting is below its creator. And we must be careful that in our affection for God and because of his love for us as his children, we don't lose sight of the fact that the God we come to meet, the God whose word we try to understand, our God, he is a consuming fire. Hebrews chapter 12, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, eternal, all powerful, all wise, the definition of what is right and what is good. And I think it's so interesting, Job, who faced a challenging situation in his life. And if anyone perhaps had cause to grumble against God, was it not Job in what he had to face? And yet look at how God responds to Job when he does. Job, where were you when I laid the earth's foundation or marked its dimensions? In other words, Job, I want to help to remind you that when we engage with one another, I love you, but we are not on the same level. We are not even close to being on the same level. 
Yet I love you and I value you. But remember, you are the painting and I am the painter, essentially is what God says. We are not God's equals. And so this belief speaks to the nature of God. It also says something about our understanding of who we are. And I'm going to say more about that next week as we dive into the latter part of Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. It also says something about our understanding of worship and sin, which we'll look at the following week as we look at Genesis chapter 3. There is order and life when creation is in submission to its creator. And there is disorder and death and corruption and sin when creation rebels against its creator. And so I want to show you just very quickly a few things out of the beginning of Genesis chapter 1 that Hebrews chapter 11 launches us back into that hopefully inspires our worship and our awe of the God who has made everything that we see. This is our origin story. It's not God's origin story because he has no beginning. But it's our origin story at his hand. So Genesis chapter 1 begins like this. In the beginning, God. And that is perhaps the most important thing that we can get out of the whole of the book of Genesis. In the beginning, there was God. Because God is eternal and has no beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Um, The word that we have for the series, uh, origins, it comes from another way of translating this Hebrew word that I will try to pronounce, bereshit, which is a combination of two things, in and the beginnings. Reshit, beginnings. And what's interesting about this word is it's normally used as part of two bookends. The beginnings normally indicate that what is coming is an ending. And so right in the very beginning of, this, of the Bible, there is an indication that in the beginning there is God. And the assumption that they would have received is, and in the end there will be God too. And in the beginning God creates, and in the end God will judge And so as you read through the Old Testament, you'll begin to see the prophets pick up this idea of in the last days, in the end times, there will be a judgment. And and so we have right up front this, this idea that God is the eternal God from the beginning to the end, the creator and the judge of everything that he has made. And he goes on, verse three, and God said... Let there be light. And there was. God said, it's this affirmation in Genesis chapter 1, that the God that we serve is so powerful that he creates simply through his intention to do so. God needed nothing but himself to create everything that we see. Psalm 33 verse 8 says this, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the people of the world revere him, for he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood fast. Now, I was thinking of what it is to be afraid in another being's company. I I have a bit of a fear of spiders. Um, 
I don't know if anyone else struggles with that. I would completely understand it if you do. Snakes, bigger animals, not so much of a problem. Spiders really freak me out. And, and I was thinking, think of, the, think of the emotional response, Jason, that you have to a spider. And think of what your emotional response should be to the being who is so powerful that simply with a word, he can create the multitude of stars that go beyond even your ability to comprehend. To stand in the midst of a being that is that great and that powerful. What should our response be? What should our heart response be to the things that that God says and that God does? And then right at the end of the, of the first chapter, verse 31, and God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And so we have this picture of, of God said and it came to be and God saw and it was good. He creates and his evaluation of what he makes is that it is very good. Now, if I had time, I would love to unpack in more detail the days of creation that we have accounted for us in this first chapter. And evangelical Christians understand the dynamics of these days of creation in different ways, from what might be termed a traditional six-day creationism to views that give expanded time between day one and day 6.5, Okay, um, but all would all sort of evangelical Christianity would agree on some key things, and it's those key things that I want to just bring to our attention now. And that is that within the days of creation, there is a pattern that God seems to highlight for us. There are eight acts of creation, one on each day, except for day three and day six, which each have two acts of creation. And on day six, unlike day three, where the land is seen as God's intermediary in creating the vegetation, God commands the land to bring forth vegetation. On day six, we see that God makes mankind in his image, individually, uniquely, personally, we're going to look again, as I say, at that more detail next week at human creation, man and woman and marriage and relationships. That's not one to miss next week. But what we're meant to leave with as we come to the end of Genesis chapter one is something very significant and important is meant to have taken place in our hearts and spirits as we are given the picture of a God powerful beyond our ability to conceive, wise beyond our ability to fathom, creating the billions upon billions of stars with a word, the scale of his creation. These sort of throwaway lines. And he made the sun and the moon and all the stars. He makes the heavens and, and all the vegetation and all the creatures in the sea and in the air. But then... Individually, personally, he makes Adam and Eve and humanity and puts his breath into us. And we leave with a picture of a God that is not aloof 
or removed or careless or unconcerned about you and me, but a God who is, yes, a consuming fire and at the same time, a deeply relational being. Isn't that amazing? By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen is not made out of what was visible. And so the writer to the Hebrews would be encouraging us this morning, now go and live in the reality of that belief that there is a creator, a creator God who can both command the galaxies into being and knows every hair that's on your head and knows every day of your life and has written them in his book and knows every feeling you've had and every hardship you've had to face and every opportunity that is before you and every word that's been on your mouth and every thought that's been in your mind. He knows every detail of our lives. That God The only God surely deserves our fullest respect and honor and worship and attention and love and awe. And I would even say fear in the right sense. Fear mingled with love, I think, is the heart response that we should have as we come to God. And so can we worship the Lord and if the team want to come up? And just to have this concept in our hearts and minds today, that we serve a very powerful God whose works and wonders are actually all around us, all the time. They shout out his glory and praise. And yet there is a battle in this world right now and in our hearts and in our lives. Will we choose To believe what God has said, that he is the creator of all things, or will we not? And this is at the very heart of what it means to journey with God. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about the church and how to connect with us in person or online, wherever you are, please visit our website at www.chiltonchurch.org. 